Oh, good morning, Mountain View. Thanks for gathering with us again this morning. Before we dig in, as uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 6 and 7, let me just uh, mention two things. One is we have asked at least four times now uh, for you to participate in communicating your intentions for giving with us. And our finance team meets tomorrow to work together um, and trying to figure out what kind of projected budget income uh, we, can, we can ask for. And so if you haven't participated yet, this is the last time I'm going to ask, if you haven't participated yet, would you please follow the link provided for you and uh, communicate your intentions for giving for the next year with us. Uh, Second thing I want to talk about and invite you to is actually a prayer to community, or sorry, church to community prayer time uh, this next Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. We're going to invite you to come to the church parking lot and then we're going to break into groups and go to strategically to some locations and pray purposefully and intentionally uh, about some very specific topics that I think uh, we could just pray about in our community. And so join us in the church parking lot at 7 o'clock. We will practice social distancing and uh, just be sure to, to plan accordingly. All right? Uh, we are in a series called Scattered. And uh, we are going chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And today I'm going to attempt to work our way through two entire chapters, Acts chapter 6 and Acts chapter 7, where we read about a common Christian man. Now, this guy is not an apostle. This guy is not a church leader. He's just an average guy. And it's because of guys like this, like him, that, that the church was moving forward, propelled forward, and, and experienced early uh, growth in the early church. And at this point in history, the church is becoming a pretty aggressive movement. I mean, it's growing. And, and at this point, we can best guess that there's at least 10,000 people who are following Jesus now. That's probably one-fourth or a quarter of the population of the entire city of Jerusalem. And so from this point on in our study in the book of Acts, we're going to see Christianity grow and we're going to see Christianity spread and it's going to go around the world. It's going to move beyond Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, just like Jesus instructed in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And the question is this, why, why is the church growing like this? Uh, several weeks ago, in, in an all-church email, I mentioned a guy named Kenneth Latre, and, and this is what he says about it. He says, never in so such short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, ever achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture without the aid of physical force or social or cultural prestige. In other words, never has a movement like this ever happened in history that didn't require war or or, or conquest or politics to spread, but Christianity is. And so the question that we get to ask ourselves is how? how? How did it spread? And why is it growing like this? And part of the answer, I think, is found as we discover and look at the character of the man that we're going to study today. His name is Stephen. Stephen has a principle that he lived his life by. He has this principle that that made him the kind of guy who kept the movement going, keeps people together, and keeps things moving forward. And this was his principle. Stephen lived by one principle, and it was this. It's not about me. It's not about me. 
I mean, do you know anybody like that? Who, who really, when you think about their characteristics, you think about their personality, that really, purposefully, intentionally, they've chosen just not to make life about them. I mean, right now, it's easy in our culture to see the opposite, where all of us are, are, are kind of free-for-all and, and, and survival for the fittest, and, and we just, it's all about me. We want the world to be about me. And so here's Stephen who really exemplifies for us what it looks like to be an early Christian, what it looks like, to, what are the characteristics to, to be a Christian is to declare that, that life, this, all of this isn't about me. And so let's dig in. Acts chapter 6 verse 1 says this, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist. And what is a Hellenist? A Hellenist is, is, is a Jew with Greek cultural roots. A Hellenist is, is the Greek word, or, or the Greek word for Hellas. It refers to the geographic region of Greece. And so here it is. A complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because those, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food, of care, uh, providing for them. And so remember, Luke gives us, he loves to give us these Lukean nuggets, is what I call them, and then they're details that seem kind of unimportant or, or that they don't really matter. But here's the deal. This one verse tells us that this is a serious situation because of cultural ethnicity. This is a racial issue. All of a sudden, the accusation is you're prioritizing this group over this group because of where they are from. And so there are a couple of issues here. First, the Hellenists, they assigned complaints against the Hebrews, making the assumption that the Hebrews weren't taking care of their widows because they only cared about the Jewish widows. And the second issue that they brought is the issue of the apostles that said basically a complaint arose, which implies that there was this general grumbling, this this general irritation that that had surfaced and kind of risen to the top. Instead of going to the apostles directly, they sit back and they were gathering together. And what were they saying? They were saying things like, you can almost hear it. You know, they just don't care about us. You can almost hear it. Well, they only care about themselves. And you can almost hear, well, I guess we're just not as important as they are. We're not important enough. And so last week we talked about how Satan has been attacking the early church from the outside. But guess what he does? He moves now and tries to attack from the inside. And this is a significant threat. Here's why. Because distrust and resentment are Satan's tool to destroy a church. Let me say that again. Distrust and resentment are Satan's tools to destroy a church. And so this is Satan's third major attack in the book of Acts on the church. In Acts chapter 4, the church is attacked by the political and religious leaders from the outside. In Acts chapter 5, the church is attacked through the embezzlement of one of its leaders on the inside. In Acts chapter 6 now, the attacks of the church are coming from Satan through grumbling and distrust and, and resentment and gossip and backstabbing. And, and this, so this is, a, this is maybe the most serious threat that the church has experienced so far. And, and, and mark my words here, grumbling and complaining actually kills more churches than persecution does. When we speak evil against other Christians, and especially when we judge their motives, and then we talk about it, and this, these people who do this are being used by Satan. And one of our leadership principles at Mountain View is this, people first always. What does that mean? It means that we give people the benefit of the doubt, and we go to them directly to fix the problem. And so the next verse shows us how the church leaders respond, and I love how the church leaders respond. They don't sit back and grumble and complain back about them. Well, if they would have just come to us, 
in the first place, we don't hear that kind of nonsense. What we hear is this, Acts chapter 6, verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this responsibility, to this duty. And we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so a lot of people interpret this, oh, the apostles were too good to serve tables. No, 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 no. This implies that they were already serving. But but as the church grew and as the church matured and as more people were added to the church, the needs of the people increased. And so the apostles understood that they couldn't neglect the ministry that they had, but they also needed to ensure that this was for fulfilled. And so the apostles were servants. You got to remember that these apostles followed Jesus. Jesus washed their feet. They understood how important serving was for the first five chapters in the Acts, in the book of Acts. The apostles are serving. This is exactly what they're doing. But now as the widows increase, or the number of the widows increases, and, and, and understanding that their time would be consumed to meet these needs, they appoint some others. Look at verse 5. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and and Philip, and and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And notice, notice that these are Greek names, which means that the apostles included the Hellenistic Christians to be a part of the form of leadership that was established. It says this, And these they set before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them. And verse 7 says this, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And, and here's another Lukean point here, And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why in the world does Luke specifically call out the priests? Why does he tell us? Why does he even mention the priests? And here's the reason. Because uh, my thought about it is this. that Because the Old Testament, what were the priests in charge of doing? The priests were in charge of taking care of the poor. And so the entire growth of the church is actually acting like priests as they take care of the poor. And priests were involved. They, they actually stood when Jesus was being punished to death and shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But now their hearts have changed. How? And, and why? Because the priests gravitated to the way the church served other people, especially the poor, the unfortunate. Verse 8 says this, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so clearly, Stephen is being used by God to affect life change, and people are turning to Jesus, which actually causes some problems. You think this would be a good thing, but it actually creates some problems. And so Stephen is called before the religious leaders to answer for some of his accusations. And so he's called before the religious leaders and other priests to answer for what he's doing. And and I love what Stephen does. Stephen seizes the opportunity to preach a sermon. And he actually preaches the longest sermon recorded in the book of Acts. Read Acts chapter 7 sometime today. I can't cover it all today, but it's one of the coolest chapters because it's a survey of Israel's history. And and basically, basically what Stephen does is he makes two major points. And the two major points are this. He he says that they resisted the prophets. God sent them. And 
Their law cannot save them. And so what Stephen does is Stephen says, listen, here's the reality. You, you have been trying to follow God, but every time God sends somebody to you, you reject them. Oh, and by the way, you believe following all the rules is what's going to save you, and it's not. And so Stephen basically told the religious leaders three things. One, they were resisting the Holy Spirit and what God was trying to do, and they'd always done that, so they shouldn't really expect anything different. The second thing is that they were persecuting the Christians and killing, or not the Christians, persecuting the prophets and killing the prophets, which they had always done. And then thirdly, they were breaking the law of Moses, which they had always done also. So then Stephen, after he preaches this history and points out that they have failed, 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 he he ends it with a punch in the gut, and he says this in verse 51 of chapter 7. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and you have now murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and you have not kept it. And so what Stephen does is he just goes straight for the jugular. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at them. I don't know if you've ever said anything to anybody that made them so angry. They just growled and grinded their teeth together because they were so angry. Verse 55 says this, But he, talking about Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I have seen the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is key and it's so important because we're talking about priests here. This is why Luke is talking to us about the priests who have become Christians. He's talking about the priests who are now angry that Stephen is trying to convert these priests because the priests in the Old Testament were the only people allowed to enter into the Holy of Holies and to experience the glory of God in the presence once a year. And what Stephen is saying here is, I'm seeing heaven open up in front of me. And Stephen is not a priest. Stephen is not an apostle. Stephen is an everyday, ordinary, common man. And this should be especially encouraging to us Christians today. Here's the reason why. Because the church has become a nation of priests who get to commune with God and take care of the poor. Don't miss that. This is what Peter wrote about in 1 Peter chapters 1 and 2 where he says, We're a royal priesthood, a holy nation called by God with him as the cornerstone and built and and he." This is incredible because the church, as Christians, we are a part of a brotherhood and a sisterhood of priests who are called to care for those around us. And verse 57 says this, but they cried out with a loud voice and they acted so childish. They closed their ears and went na 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 and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And he wit- the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so listen, Stephen irritated him so much that they killed him. But Luke gives us another little nugget. Here's what he says. The witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man. His name was Saul. The Saul is going to undergo his own life change, and his name will change to Paul, and we're going to see his life change in a few weeks in Acts chapter 9. 
but God is going to change Saul, and, and, and Paul is going to become one of the biggest influencers of Christianity and take this movement outside of Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and he is watching very intently and very closely, in approval, by the way, to what's happening to Stephen. Look at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, Stephen called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Stephen became the very first Christian martyr. What is a martyr? A martyr is a person who dies for his or her beliefs. A Christian martyr is someone that, who is killed because of his or her witness to Jesus Christ. And Stephen was an outstanding witness to Jesus. And it was because of his witness that he was actually punished to death. And I think there are some really key, key observations, some lessons from Stephen's life. And I've got five of them I want to share with you. And what I want you to think about is how these lessons apply to your own life. The first one is this, serving is at the core of our Christian commitment. Serving is at the core of who we are and what we do when we choose to follow Jesus. And so Stephen, he is introduced to us as a, as a servant. His job is not glorious. It's actually undervalued, underrated, almost missed, yet important to feed the widows. And so Stephen is clearly gifted. He's gifted in leadership, which is why he was appointed. He's gifted in, in, in theology and doctrine. Uh, we can see that through his sermon. And he can preach. We can see that as he preaches. And we can almost hear Stephen, Stephen say, it, it's not about me. I can do whatever needs to be done. And so even though feeding the widows seems to be insignificant, it had an impact on the early church. Even though it seems to be undervalued, and Stephen is probably overqualified to do this job, Stephen is preserving the unity of the church by, by serving. His serving had, had a key impact on, on even the people who would persecute him. But by serving, priests turned to Jesus. And so our desire at Mountain View is that we would be a church that would be characterized by serving. And our mission is to affect life change. And we, our tag through belonging, growing, and serving, that serving peace. We want to be fully devoted followers, disciples of Jesus. What is a disciple? Somebody who is with Jesus, somebody who's becoming like Jesus, and somebody who's doing the things that Jesus did. And so this is important. And I love what some of the early, early people noted, historians noted, about, about this movement. You remember I shared this a few weeks ago, but it's by Emperor Julian. This is what he wrote. He said, atheism, which he actually called Christianity atheism. He said, Christianity has been specifically advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. Emperor Julian says, it is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for our poor as well. He says this, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Emperor Julian, who is, who is against the movement of Christianity, he says, I can't explain the movement other than they're taking care of one another. Look what historian Arnold says, most astounding to the outside observer was the extent to which poverty was overcome in the vicinity of the communities of Christianity. 
Christians spent more money in the streets than the followers of other religions spent in their temples. And so we don't need to wait to gather again in this building to start serving. We don't need to be able to gather and do church the way we've done church to be servants. We've been asked not to gather. We haven't been asked to stop preaching and to stop serving. And so quickly, let me address something that a lot of people, I think, sometimes struggle with when we ask the question, well, where should I serve? And the first thing I would say is, listen, if you haven't participated in Rooted with us yet, this fall, I think we're going to try to kick off a couple of Rooted groups. Man, I want you to sign up because week six and seven specifically deal with serving and finding our gifts and our skills. And so how do we decide where we want to serve and what we want to do within the church or beyond the church walls, which might be more important today than it's ever been before? First, you discover a skill. Discover your skill. What what are you good at? What are you passionate about? But then there's another side to this. I'm not for sure that Stephen was super passionate or super skilled at waiting tables for the widows. I'm not for for sure about that. But I do know this. I know that Stephen saw a need and decided he was going to do something about it. He had greater skills. He had skills and passions. But simply, he chose to serve where there was a need to serve. And we need to stop waiting for that perfect area and that perfect moment that fits my passion or my skills. Or I need to discover my skills or my passions before I can serve. How about we look around us in our own families, in our workplaces? How about we look in our neighborhoods, in our communities, and say there is a need there and I might be able to help meet that need. There is no excuse for us not to be serving. Stephen modeled this for us. It's at the core commitment of what Christianity is all about. The second lesson I think we learn is this, that that we need to be familiar with God, and the way we learn about God is through Scripture. And this is critically important for us. When Stephen preached in Acts 7, and again, please go back, read Acts chapter 7, he retells the story, the Old Testament story of the nation Israel. And Stephen is a very different kind of preacher than Peter was. Peter would share a verse or quote a verse from the Old Testament, and then he would explain what it meant. But, but here, here Stephen hardly even quotes scriptures. Towards the end he does. He quotes Amos chapter 5, and he quotes Isaiah chapter 66. But what he does is he basically gives a straightforward recital of Jewish history. He, he does so to answer the accusations that are before him. The religious leaders and the priests said, listen, you have blasphemed against Moses and you have blasphemed against God. What do you say about that? And what, what Stephen does is remarkable. Because basically, in the entire chapter, in the entire sermon, the entire speech that he gives, he quotes the entire, he tells the whole story of the Old Testament. For example, in Acts chapter 7, verses 2 through 16, if you go read it, you're basically reading Genesis, a summary of Genesis. In Acts chapter 7, verse 17 through 41, you're getting a summary of Exodus and Numbers. And then in verse 42, 43, and 44, three verses, Numbers and Deuteronomy are being summarized for us. Verse 45 is, is Joshua and 1 Samuel, and verse 46 and 47 is 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Chronicles, and chapter 7, verse 48 through 50 is Ezra all the way through Malachi. Why is this important? Why am I even sharing this with you? Because Stephen's understanding of who God is came because he had clearly studied the Scriptures. Stephen seemed to perceive some things that a lot of other people couldn't perceive. For example, he perceived that the older, 
older, the older order of things was soon to pass, and the new order of things was coming. And so Stephen seemed to have a sense about things. And his sermon is actually a transition that will pave the way for the gospel to spread beyond Jerusalem and to go to the ends of the earth into the Gentiles. And so the question is this, have we devoted ourselves to studying about God, studying about Jesus in the Bible? Have we fallen in love with the Jesus of the Bible? Are we becoming more like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did? Because we can't certainly do the things that Jesus did. We can't become more like Jesus if we don't know who Jesus is and what he did. We need to continue be be studying and learning about who he is would any of us be prepared to preach a sermon like Stephen did if we were accused like Stephen was I hope so the third lesson is this God does and and this might be my favorite one God does some of his most extraordinary work through ordinary everyday people Stephen's sermon and death it was a foundation For Saul to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. What is the Holy Spirit trying to show us in this? Here's what he's trying to tell us. Ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit. Ordinary people, me and you, filled with the Holy Spirit, witnessing to the fact that Jesus is alive. We can do almost anything that the apostles did. We might even be able to do more than the apostles did. Because we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're we're testifying to the reality that Jesus is alive, and because of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish so much. Do you remember what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, verse 7? It says this, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Could you imagine this crazy moment? The disciples are listening to Jesus talk and they're thinking, hold on, you can't go anywhere. You got to be on our team. You got to be with us. We need you in the presence because things are going to get difficult. Things are going to be challenging and we're going to have to do all of these things. You can't leave us. I mean, I would want Jesus on my team, right? Wouldn't you want Jesus on your team? You need, you need more water. He, he multiplies it. You need more money, he can multiply that. You're sick, he can heal you. I mean, you think about these things. And yet Jesus said that the power of the Holy Spirit at work in ordinary followers would be greater than his presence himself besides us. And do you understand what he was saying? That we have no excuse to do extraordinary things. We're ordinary people, but we have the power of the Holy Spirit. And through the power of the Holy Spirit and the message of Jesus, that Jesus is alive, man, God uses ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things. And this is what we see in Stephen. And sometimes I think we've built our churches for all the wrong reasons, and it keeps us from reaching our fullest potential. The greatest miracles weren't supposed to happen by the pastor and the churches. The greatest miracles were supposed to happen through you and through me like they did through Stephen. And the hardest people to reach will likely not meet Jesus because they hear me preach. Likely the hardest people to reach will be reached because you tell them that Jesus is alive and you tell them that Jesus is, uh, the reality that Jesus is alive has changed your life. And so they will meet Jesus not because of me preaching, They'll meet Jesus because of you serving. Another lesson is this, lesson number four. Christians walk to the beat of a different drum. We have to. Jesus has to be our drummer. What I love about Stephen's life is this. Stephen's life was a contradiction to everyone else's life. He was kind. He was gracious. 
He was a servant. He was able to win the hearts of the antagonistic priests who were against the message of Jesus. How did he do this? How did he do this? Because I think that he was exactly what Paul wrote about later in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, which says, do not be conformed to, the, to this world. Don't be conformed to the world. Don't walk to the beat of the drum of the world or the people around you. Walk to the beat of the drum of Jesus. He says this, Paul wrote this, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is what Paul was talking about. This is maybe a lesson that he actually learned by watching Stephen because Stephen, remember, he preaches this entire history in Acts chapter 7 of the Israel of the nation Israel, and then he applies it. And then he says this in verse 51, do you remember? He calls them out. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in the heart and the ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit just like your fathers did. I mean, this is cutting. This is cutting. But we have to remember, we have to remember that Stephen was becoming like Jesus. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, what does it tell us? It tells us that Stephen was full of grace and power. And what is power? It comes when truth and the message intersect, right? Was doing great wonders and signs among the people. This was key. This was key. We always have to balance grace and truth. This is what we have to do. And when we're walking to the beat of of God's drum, of Jesus' drum, we're marching to his beat. Grace and truth are a part of that. And this is key because when they're stoning Stephen, what does he say? Look at verse 59 again. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But don't miss this verse. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep. Man, he was speaking these Christian essentials, grace and truth, grace and truth, so important for us. And as the world know this, the world will hate us when we speak both grace and truth because truth without grace is fundamentalism and it's easy to ignore and it's easy to write off. But grace without truth is sentimentality with no power. It's kindness with no power. It's weak. But if we speak with grace and truth, the world will hate you no matter how much grace you have. And suddenly you'll feel like a foreigner among your own people. And I could talk about this, but here's the reality. When we're trying to earn the admiration and the affirmation of the people around us, when we're trying to learn, when we're trying to earn the the admiration, the affirmation of the world around us, We become just like the world. And hear this. We become like the world when we're trying to impress the world. We become like the world when we're trying to gain the affirmation and the admiration of the world. And when we follow Jesus, we walk to the beat of His drum and we become more like Jesus. And then we do the things that Jesus did and we will be called all sorts of things like Jesus was. And when this happens, we examine our hearts and we look for any truth, but then we're going to return love to them. We're going to love them and return good for evil, and we're going to serve them, and we're going to pray for them, and we're going to be refused to become bitter, and then we're going to ask God to forgive them. And guess what? A few people will turn to Jesus because of that heart. And at the same time, people will continue to throw stones. The question is this, whose drum are you marching to? Whose beat are you marching to? Lesson number five. 
And this is a hard one. God may still let us die. He may still let us die. I mean, do you understand how hard this is? Because Stephen, he did everything right. And he was still killed for his faith. What happened? Why didn't God save him? Why didn't God reward him? Why didn't God expand his ministry? And I don't have the answer except verse 58. Here it is. Then they cast him out of the city. They stoned him. And it's this nugget of reality that Saul was there. Saul saw this happen. And the, the witnesses, they laid down their garments at Saul's feet. Saul was watching. And Saul was watching as every stone smashed into Stephen's body and as his body was turned into this mangled, bloody heap. Saul, Saul of Tarsus, he heard Stephen's request. He heard Stephen pray for him. That God don't hold their sins against them. Forgive them. (laughs) Maybe, maybe. Maybe Saul's heart could never get over that. And so when he encountered Jesus, guess what? He knew, he knew that Jesus would radically change people. Stephen's most effective contribution came through his death. Through his death. Sometimes our greatest contribution comes through our death. Something happened to Saul by seeing Stephen full of the Holy Spirit, full of grace and power. His light, his face shined, praising Jesus in the midst of his pain. And listen, church, listen. The life we live through our pain always speaks louder than the life we live through our blessings. And don't miss that. The life we live when the world is crashing down around us, the life that we live when nothing's going the way we expected, the life we live when the economy disappoints us, when our, when our jobs don't exist and our families abandon us, the life we lived in the hard times, the life we live always speaks louder than the life we live when things are going just the way we want them to go. When we say, blessed, blessed, Stephen lived by the principle, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about living. It's not about gaining. It's not about prospering. It's not about blessings. His life was all about pointing other people to Jesus. And from start to finish, you can hear Stephen's life scream, it's not about me. And maybe this should be our life principle too. Maybe my life isn't about fulfillment and contentment and security and serenity or getting the respect that I think I deserve. Maybe my life isn't about the admiration, the affirmation I get from the world. Maybe my life is about serving, washing feet, waiting tables, whatever the need is. Maybe it's not about me getting a blessing or me getting prosperity or, or, or getting, getting more because that's what I think really affirms me. It's about pointing people towards Jesus. What has become all about you? Think about it. What do you complain about? What you're complaining about is probably about you. Are you easily offended? Because what you're offended about is probably making life all about you. Are you angry at God because things aren't going the way that you expect them to go? Oh, life might be about you. Are you irritated that you don't get more adoration? affirmation? Do you get recognized more? See, life might become more about you and the way, the way Stephen, the way Stephen was able to figure out how to live a life of courage and how to live a life of selflessness was by looking up to heaven at Jesus. 
stretching out his arms with his nail-pierced hands. Jesus, the creator and the Lord of the universe, who had given up his life for Stephen. He'd washed the feet of sinners, and so it made sense for Stephen that he would serve the widows. Jesus prayed for the people who were killing him, who crucified him, who called for his death. And so what did Stephen do? He did what Jesus did. He prayed for those who were persecuting him and throwing stones and killing him. Stephen was becoming to others what Jesus had become to him. Man, do you hear this? What happens when we are like Jesus, when we walk to his the beat of his drum, when the world calls us a heretic and the world calls us crazy, Jesus, the Prince of Glory, stands at God's throne. He says, that's my child. He belongs to me. She belongs to me. When the earth condemns, heaven commends. And when the earth rejects, heaven receives. And in a moment that looked like Satan had won the battle, Stephen's actually in the hands of God. In a moment when it seems like it's all going to go to pots, God's only increasing and doing more. And it was overhauling evil with good. And Jesus was in charge of all of it. Stephen didn't know it. But watching him die would be the start of the gospel message traveling to the known world where people would hear that Jesus is alive. And I absolutely love the way God uses suffering for good. And he uses suffering to make the world a better place. Here's the reality. The degree to which we understand Jesus' love and Jesus' victory through death is the degree to which we will be able to endure suffering well. What did you learn from Stephen today? Can your life principle and anthem be, it's not about me, it's all about him? We sing it, it's all about you. Jesus, is it? Is it? Which one of these five lessons do you need to think about this week and apply to your life this week? Which one of these five lessons do you need to take a little bit more seriously? What did we learn from Stephen that we can apply to our own lives? And can we admit and confess It's not about me. It's all about you, Jesus. I want you to think about that as we sing. the 
Let's go to prayer with those words. God, I am grateful that today we can stop and uh, sit in your presence. And God, uh, as we've been singing, we, we need your hope. God, we need your love. We need you. And so as we uh, are in this moment today, uh, our need is great. And it comes from all different um, aspects uh, as is represented in the people that are, are with us this morning. God, we need, uh, we need help physically, emotionally, relationally. Um, some of us need help financially. And God, uh, I would just pray that uh, today we could set that at your feet and not allow that to overwhelm us and consume us and keep us from the encouragement that comes from being in the Word today, the encouragement from Stephen, someone who could live to the beat of the drum of a live Jesus. And God, I would pray this week that uh, we could not get bound up in our own needs, but that we could set those at the feet of the cross, trust you with those things, so that, God, you could trust us with the, the greatest thing that we could have, the greatest gift we could be given um, this side of our salvation, that is to participate in the gospel, and that we would be the light of Jesus to the world around us. The thing that we struggle with when we're bound up in 
so much of what is centered on us. So God, uh, help us this morning to release those things to you, to entrust them to you, to take care of, to work out on your time. God, so that we can do what it is you've called us to, to be Jesus to the world around us, our neighbors, coworkers, our friends, and be able to share. So God, help us to see this week with the eyes of Jesus, those moments, those opportunities, and with the boldness of Stephen, step into them and to give hope to the world around us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.